Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. Have we gotten to this point where people wake up every morning looking for something to be offended about? I live in this place called the real world, and I understand what is going to happen. Her story is, I was trying to scare him away. At the same time, she shot him point blank in the face. Okay, that's not exactly a warning shot. The Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. Coming up next, Squirrel. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So last night, in addition to all the drama involving the Iowa caucuses, or no drama, how can it be that screwed up? We'll talk about that a little bit later. HBO last night, 9 o'clock, they debuted... This six-part documentary series done by Mark Wahlberg, it's called McMillions. Now, the documentary itself, I don't understand how they can stretch it out to six parts, and it's its somewhat slow, and some of the people that they feature in it are annoying in the extreme, but it's actually a fascinating story, and I kind of, I, I do recommend it. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 I've got a link to an article that really, that talks in detail about this story and investigation. It's something a lot of us sort of forgot about. You might remember there was a time when McDonald's restaurants used to do a McDonald's Monopoly game where every time you would go to the store, you would get, and you'd buy something, you'd get um, like these little game pieces, and the game pieces were good for like a free soda or a free hamburger or whatever. They had a limited number of game pieces, though, that were instant winners, like up to a million dollars or 10,000, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this was an incredibly popular promotion that whenever McDonald's did it, they, they saw sales would go up by 20 or 30 percent. It was a very, very big deal in the 80s and the 90s when, when they ended up doing this. Well, what, what happens, and this documentary is a story, and I'll, I'll kind of cut through it all. It, it focuses on an FBI investigation in 2000, year 2000. They get this tip saying that, that this, that this, the, the whole game is, is fraudulent and it's being ripped off. And, uh, there's somebody that they refer to as Uncle Jerry who is controlling this. And again, long story short, what happens is the FBI starts to investigate. They go, they bring McDonald's in. And it turns out that there is a guy that works for the market, that worked for the marketing company that McDonald's would hire to produce produce all the game pieces. And this guy was like the director of security for the marketing company. And what he was doing, he was the one that was responsible for going to the, the plant where they printed the, the game-winning tickets. And then what he would do is he was responsible for flying around the country, and he'd, he'd have envelopes that had the game-winning tickets, and he'd go to different plants that McDonald's had where they were producing all the other tickets. And he was the one who was responsible for, I don't know, putting the million-dollar ticket on the, the plastic soda cup or things like that. Well, what ended up happening is he figured out a way to steal the tickets. And what he would do is he would take the game-winning tickets and he would replace them with just ordinary kind of losing tickets. So he had all these tickets worth thousands and thousands or in several cases, millions of dollars. Then what he would do is he would find people and he would say, okay, here, I've got this game ticket for a million bucks. Here's the deal. I'm going to give it to you. 
you give me $50,000 and I'm going to keep the $50,000 you're going to you're going to win and and they did this with like cars and and it be, ultimately how how they caught it was it turned out that somebody noticed that this guy was based out of Jacksonville, Florida, and somebody noticed that there was a disproportionate number of, of winners from the Jacksonville, Florida area. And then they started going back, and they found all the big winners, and what they were able to do is they were able to, and this was really before Al Gore formally invented the Internet, they were able to ultimately trace the, these these family relations. It, it turns out that all these winners, whether they were Jacksonville, Florida, or Columbia, South Carolina, or whatever, that, that they had contact with each other and and the, the documentary goes into all sorts of details about this or it will I've got a link to a story that talks all about this it is fascinating the reason it perhaps did not get more attention is the principals went on trial about a week before September 11th 2001 and this was getting all this attention because this was this big deal you know McDonald's and being defrauded and all those things and everybody who over like a 10 or 15 year period went out and bought french fries and hamburgers and Big Macs and apple pies and all those things truth was none of us ever really had a chance to win any of the big prizes because you had Uncle Jerry who was ripping them all off and distributing them to friends and hangers on etc ultimately like 50 people ended up getting caught in this. So it's it's a fascinating story about something that I think a lot of people either never really knew about or kind of forgotten about. And if, if you want to watch the documentary, like I say, it's at least the first part I thought was slow and some of the characters, like I say, are just sort of annoying. Um, but, but if you want to read about it, I've got a link to the story. It's absolutely fascinating. So that it's called McMillions, and it's certainly worth watching. Okay. Here is the deal. We're going to talk about the Iowa caucuses. We're going to talk about impeachment. We're going to talk about a number of local issues, including the complete meltdown with the people who are responsible for, I don't know, raising all the money for the Democratic National Convention this summer. That's all coming up. But I want to start off with a story that the Journal Sentinel has been all over, and they have just updated. And it's one of these interesting stories, because my question to you is going to be, who really should get, in this case, the car. Here's the deal. Okay, in 1967, there's a guy named Ray Leesky. 1967, he buys the parts for this 1938 Talgot Lago French teardrop coupe. It's a, it's a French sports car from 1938. The thing is in awful shape, and, and it's really just parts. The guy buys it, 1967, for about $10,000 in 1967 money, and his plan is always, I'm going to restore this someday. I'm going to I'm going to take this. It, it's just parts, but I, I'm going to restore this. Now, that would have been a really cool thing because there's only about 15 of these cars that were made. They are incredibly, incredibly rare. So the guy's got all these parts. He owns a little plastics factory on the south side. And then these these parts, the parts for the car are in like a corner of the plastics factory starting in 1967. Well, he doesn't do anything with them for the next, you know, 34 years. You know, you understand how that, I'm going to restore this, I'm going to restore that. Maybe you're like that or maybe you know somebody that's like that. So the parts just kind of sit in this, this plastics factory that the guy has. In 2001, somebody breaks in and steals all the parts. 
Somebody steals everything that, that he had and disappears into the night with all the parts for, for this car. So it's gone. They file a police report, etc. The police start looking for it, but they, they, they never find it. 2005, Ray passes away. So his heirs, you know, in, inherit all his stuff, including, you know, the right to this car that, that's been stolen. If the car's ever, if the parts were ever stolen or recovered, it's just kind of like, you know, I don't know, if your, your dad leaves you a whole bunch of stuff and your dad has been ripped off somewhere along the line and they find whatever your dad's you know, been stolen from your dad, you're the heir. You get it. So, all right, this is now 2005. Well, what happens is, and it gets a little bit complicated here, what happens is there's a, a car collector who specializes in finding lost cars, and he hears about this, that the parts for this very, very rare car, rare, rare car have disappeared. And so he goes to the heir of, of the owner, and he says, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to go into partnership with you. I'm going to give you some money, and I want to have part ownership interest in the car if we can find the car. So I'll, I'll pay you, so we'll be like co-owners of the car. The heir says, fine, that, that's great. Hey, I, you know, something's better than nothing. So the guy that buys now this interest, he, he starts looking for the car and starts aggressively trying to find the car. Well, long story short, what happened is they, they know who stole the car. I think he was charged about four years ago. I think he's still hiding out in Switzerland. But anyhow, he takes the car parts. He takes them to Switzerland, and over the period of years, he has this car restored, all right? Has the car restored. So um, he also forges documents claiming that he is the rightful owner, but he, he's forged them all. So he's got these forged documents, and he restores the car. What the guy then does, the thief, is he sells the car for somewhere around almost $7 million, he finds this really, really rich car collector in Illinois. And he says, hey, I've got this. I've got one of only 15 of these cars. You want to buy it? The guy says, sure, I want to buy it. So he sells it. The thief sells it to the car collector in Illinois for $7 bucks. All right, everything's fine, I guess, until the car collector goes to try to register the car in Illinois, and it comes back stolen. And so, okay, now he knows he has a stolen car. Well, the heir of the original owner and the guy who has an interest in this, they go to the guy in Illinois and they say, we want the car back. You know, this is you bought stolen property. We want our car back. And the guy in Illinois says, pound sand. I'm not giving you the car back. I I didn't know it was stolen. I mean, the guy I bought it from had fake paperwork. But it's, you know, I... I'm an innocent purchaser of this car. Sorry that the car was stolen, but I'm not giving it back. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I don't want to go too far into the weeds on the different legalities. I want to ask you what you think should happen here. You've got the guy in Illinois that paid out almost $7 million to buy this one of uh, a kind, there's only 15 in the world, 1938 sports cars. He paid $7 million for it. Now it turns out that he was buying stolen property. All right, should he have to return it? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 
You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So here's the deal: you got the guy in Illinois. He's got this car. He paid almost seven million dollars for it. Well, it turns out it was stolen decades ago from the rightful owner when it was nothing but parts. Guy in Illinois doesn't want to give up the car. He says, look, I didn't know this car was stolen. Matter of fact, the guy I bought it from had paperwork. Turned out the paperwork was forged. But, you know, I I shouldn't have to give back the, the car. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start out with a couple texts. Jeff, I I think this is a no-brainer. The term, to me, is caveat emptor. That would be let the buyer beware. Um, Unless you can prove legal ownership, you don't have jack. Um, Jeff, if I'm buying a $7 million car, I think I would check into it prior to writing the check. Car goes back to the heirs. Um, You know, you deserve to lose it if you're that stupid. Well, I mean, I think the buyer... He would say, well, I, I did check. I mean, the, the guy I bought it from had paperwork on it indicating that he had acquired it legally. It's just that the paperwork was all forged. How am I supposed to know? Jeff, um, I have the Mona Lisa for sale if you are interested. Um, no, thanks. Jeff, it's simple. The car belongs to the original owner. The guy in Illinois has to get his money back from the thief in Switzerland. Um, all right, here's another one. Jeff, I think the guy should not have to return the car. He didn't know it was stolen. Maybe return it if he can get his $7 million back. Okay, well, the, the case, what happened What happened is that, and the reason it's in the news today, is the Wisconsin State Supreme Court reversed a circuit court judge. Circuit court judge had ruled that um, the original owner, the rightful owner, was out of luck because the car didn't turn up till after the statute of limitations expired. Well, the Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision, disagreed with that, and they say, okay, now the matter goes back to trial. So the, the rightful owners have a chance to get it. For me... I I think this is an if you're asking me what is the right outcome here I agree with a couple of the textures to me this is this is an absolute no-brainer I I feel bad for the guy who paid 7 million dollars for it but it doesn't change the fact that he the person he bought it from didn't have title for this I mean if look if somebody breaks into your house and steals your big screen TV and then Somebody else buys that TV off of a truck in the back of an alley, right? And then they catch, then they find out about it. That's still your TV. You know, your TV was stolen, and the thief doesn't get title to it, and the person who paid money to the thief doesn't get title to it. It belongs to the original owner. In this case, it belongs to the heir of the original owner owner now i'm not going to say that i think that the um i, I think that the guy that, that bought it from the thief i mean he, he asked for some paperwork you know maybe maybe he thought he was getting too good a deal but to me that doesn't matter he, he didn't have he didn't buy title because there wasn't anything legitimate to sell in the first place if he wants to get his seven million dollars back he does have a cause of action What's that cause of action? It's to go after the thief who is still in Switzerland and get the money from him. Now, you might say, well, Jeff, that's not a very reasonable thing. You know, he's not going to be able to get the dough from the guy in Switzerland. Guy in Switzerland's already probably spent all that. And, and yes, I, I understand all that. But thieves should not be able to benefit from stealing different things. And in this case, I think it's very, very clear that the, that car 
whether it's assembled or disassembled, mean that belonged to the guy that bought it in 1967, and it belongs to his heirs. And the fact that it was stolen from him in 2001 and subsequently reassembled and sold to somebody else doesn't change the fact that the original family owns that car, and it should go back. And my guess is, after this goes through some more court proceedings, that's precisely what is going to happen. And it's unfortunate. I understand that the guy in Chicago is getting rogered out of this deal. I I get it. He's out $7 million, and he's going to lose the car. But the bottom line is, if he's going to be unhappy, it's not with the legal system, and it's certainly not with the rightful owner. He should be upset with the guy who sold him the stolen car in the first place, period. Now, the other larger question is $7 million for a car. And by the way, they say that they think the car right now might be worth like $15 million. Um, it, the purchase price was $7 million. They think it might be worth $15 million or so. Spectacular car, one of only 15 ever made. I think it should be coming back to Milwaukee. This is Jeff Wagner. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Republican or Democrat, it's a pretty stupid way to decide how to nominate a presidential candidate. And hopefully, hopefully this will be the last time Iowa and New Hampshire get to have the initial phase of choosing the presidential candidates to themselves. Now, you you have undoubtedly been following the absolute and total cluster bumble that occurred, you know, last night with the Iowa caucuses. Candidates have been in Iowa for the last 6 to 8 to 10 to 12 months. There have been millions of dollars spent in in Iowa, way out of proportion to Iowa's electoral votes, etc. The only reason they're there is because Iowa is the first state to have, in this case, they have a caucus, not a primary. And so you have all these candidates that are rushing to Iowa because the theory is, you can't, if you don't, if you're not viable after Iowa, if you're not one of the top three or four candidates, your campaign is going to go nowhere. So we spend all this time and money in Iowa, a state which arguably is not representative of the rest of the country. Then after Iowa, everybody immediately packs up leaves Iowa never to go back again, and goes to New Hampshire, another small state, arguably not representative at all of the country. Well, last night what happened was a complete and total debacle. You, in Iowa, and I'll I'll try to make this simple, um, in Iowa, instead of having a primary where people actually go out and vote, they have a caucus. What that means is there are all these different hundreds of caucus sites across the state, and people go and they get together. So maybe you've got like 200 people at the high school gym where your caucus is. And then what they do is they organize you by candidate. Who supports Elizabeth Warren? Who supports Bernie Sanders, etc.? And then they look at, okay, who, who's lined up out of the 200 people that are here in the gym? Who's lined up in favor of this candidate or that candidate? If you get less than 15% of the vote of the supporters, well, your candidate is out. And so then you have the choice of being able to go home or move to another candidate. This process works its way out until finally you get you settle on X number of candidates. Then what happens is they tally the, the votes. This is the number of people that are supporting this candidate and that candidate. And then they send that information off. Okay, the person that won the Wagner caucus, all right, that they send that information off and it is tabulated and put together with all the other caucuses that are around. Well, this year... They're using this app. It's it's a new process 
designed to <clears throat> speed up and make more efficient the, the whole process. Interestingly, it was developed by some people involved with Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. So the idea behind the app was that the, the person that was running the individual caucus, the precinct chairperson or whatever, once they got the results from their caucus, they would send they would just post the information on on the app and it would automatically register and somebody in Des Moines or whatever would see hey okay the the Wagner caucus the results are in this is it all be computerized well there have been a number of problems with this first of all apparently a lot of people didn't download the app or didn't try to download the app until the last minute and then when they did they weren't able to do it then some people who downloaded the app tried to log in, and apparently what happened was that um, they'd done a test earlier on, and the the login information that you used for the test was different than the login information you did for the real thing. So there's a lot of people who have down first they can't download the app. Then some who downloaded the app, they can't log in to get the information. So now, you know, this thing is going on. They can't report it electronically. So what they decide to do is go back to the old-fashioned way. They, they call up, you know, Des Moines, and, and they start to give the information. Well, the folks in Des Moines are overwhelmed by this. They can't take the information. They start hanging up on people because they, they don't know what to do. On top of that, the app and and I, I'm still not exactly sure how this happened, but apparently the app was not accepting all the information. And what they were having is they were having incomplete results, even from the people who were able to download the thing, log on. They would send information back, but the information was being reported in an incomplete fashion. So it's a complete and total hot mess. You have all these candidates who are around, and it's one thing to say, okay, we, we've got to wait for the results for a little bit because, you know, we've, there's a couple polls that are still open or whatever, or we had this polling problem. No, you have this widespread system failure. So as of last night, you know, all the candidates, there's no results in. There's no results from the Democratic primary in at, at all. So the candidates, they're all claiming victory because, you know, they've got their own poll watchers or caucus watchers or whatever. So they're getting internal information, but there's no official information at all, and th- there's no assurance as to the reliability of this. The Iowa Democrat State Democratic Party is saying that by 5 o'clock today, they will be able to release preliminary results. In other words, they say they might have about 50% of the results in, but that means there's another 50% that are, are still out there. I mean, it's, and meanwhile, all the candidates have gone on to you know, New Hampshire, and I think a lot of people are saying, why, why did we spend all this money? You know, we spent all this money and invested all this time in Iowa because, you know, we were hoping to win Iowa and get this bump and stuff like that. Now that, that's gone because you're probably, you might have an idea by the end of today you know, who's ahead in Iowa, but it's not going to really matter that much, and you're probably not going to have the final results for Lord knows how long. And then there's also questions about, you know, are the final results accurate? So this has been just a huge mess. And a lot of people are saying that this is it for Iowa. This will be the last time, you know, that the whole process starts in Iowa. That's, to me, the interesting aspect of this. And again, I don't care whether it's Republicans picking a president or whether it's Democrats picking a president. Remember, Republicans went through this 
you know, last year, where you, or last election in 2016, where you had 13, 14, 15 candidates who pretty much camped out in Iowa trying to recruit the support of a handful of people, you know, who then were going to give them the momentum to, to go on to New Hampshire, et cetera. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think there has to be a better way of selecting a presidential nominee other than this screwed-up caucus system that allows a small state in the Midwest a disproportionate impact on, on selecting the president and then goes to an even smaller state in the Northeast and gives them a disproportionate impact. Here's what I think should happen. I would say a series, instead of a state-by-state primary, do regional primaries. That is to say, okay, maybe on one Tuesday, you're going to pick four, five, six states close together to each other. And you're going to have a primary there. I'd do away with this whole caucus thing. And then, then a week later, you move, or two weeks later, you, you move to the south, and you lump seven or eight southern states together. And you have regional primaries that allow the candidates to essentially, instead of chasing state by state by state, concentrate their efforts in different regions. And instead of allowing one state, like New Hampshire, for example, to have the, the whole say-so, and to decide who the front runner is going to be, you have multiple states in in the region, and the camp you make it easy for the candidates because they campaign in the region. Our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think what happened last night is an embarrassment, but the truth of the matter is, while the Democrats have egg all over their face, the Republicans it could happen to the Republicans as well as long as we continue this screwy system. I would say once and for all, let's recognize that what we're doing really doesn't make a lot of sense. And let's look at something different. I think regional primaries spread out over a two-month period of time, five or six states at once, close together, give the candidates all a chance to campaign, and then see who emerges. Okay, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think last night was an embarrassment, whether, again, you're a Republican or a Democrat. Democrats look really bad. But if I was a Democrat voter, if I was a huge supporter of any of these candidates, I'd be mad as you know what. We spent all this time, we spent all this money, you know, trying to get a relative handful of people to come out on a Tuesday night in February, and this is what we get. And now we're running to a really tiny state in the Northeast. Isn't there a better way? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line we discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's go to the text line while Gru is lining up the calls. Spot on, Jeff. Regional primaries are efficient and sensible. And why roll out the primary fleet with a leaky flagship like the Iowa caucuses, which pretty much um, sank uh, last night? Well, they they did. They did sink last night. And again, it, it gives disproportionate impact to a, a small, not necessarily representative state. Now, I understand you can arguably make that same claim about, well, gee, for the general election, you know, Wisconsin gets disproportionate attention, but, but that's because, you know, we are a purple state and very much in play for the Electoral College. But from the perspective of the primaries, you know, why is it? 
seriously that you have these candidates who are really camped out in in Iowa for the better part of a year, all trying to curry favor with a couple thousand voters. I mean, wouldn't it make more sense if you want to find candidates that are representative of of the parties? Wouldn't it make more sense to, again, do what I'm talking about, which is the regional primaries? You put a bunch of states together. That allows the candidates to concentrate on, on the regions. You know, so it's not like you have to bounce around you know, we're, we're in California one day, we've got to fly back to New Hampshire the next day, then we got to fly down to Florida. Instead, you, you lump them by geography. You're also lumping them by interest. Now, I also understand that you have, a, for example, a state like New York is going to be, you know, with New York City, is going to be much more diverse than a state like Maine. But nevertheless, it's still that overall region. Wouldn't you get a better, stronger candidate? And I don't care whether it's Democrat or Republican. Wouldn't that be better for the process? Let's talk to Mike. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Uh, hi, Jeff. Hi, Mike. Uh, I kind of like your idea, but uh, I've thought about this a lot in the past, actually. Why not take it a step further and just have a one-day nationwide primary? Uh, candidates wouldn't need to be uh, running all over the country. They could just put their platform online. I can read it there, and I don't need to see them in person to decide well, I get I see and I understand that. I guess I th- I don't think there's anything wrong with candidates having to be in states and having to hold rallies and do a lot of that like in-person kind of retail campaigning. I I think yeah, you know, maybe we will move to a point where just like you know, just like in, in the state of Wisconsin, you know, we're going to have a primary in a couple weeks that, that's going to decide who the ultimate general election candidates are. So, I mean, thanks, Nicole. Maybe it's going to be similar to that. But I see, I, I still think, I think it is a good process that requires candidates to go into the different states and to concentrate on the states as opposed to simply, a, a, for example, a Mike Bloomberg of the world that's going to, or a Donald Trump of the world, who's just got more money than they know what to do with and just going to do nothing but run you know, different TV ads. I, I think it's good for candidates to show up at, at fish fries and at you know social clubs and, and, and to hold rallies on Main Street. So I, I wouldn't want to completely go away and just have that national primary because I think what you would do then is you would really give a huge advantage to number one the candidate who was um the the candidates who were the the most well funded and and number two i i do think from the perspective of selecting delegates you know it it is important to have regional flavor and to have candidates who are going to like tailor messages to to different needs so i'm not in favor of the national primary concept but this idea that hey we're going to be in new hampshire we're going to be in in des moines we're going to be in iowa and that's going to be decide who the front runners are nuts to that I mean, nuts to that, and no disrespect to Iowa, but my goodness, they've pretty much demonstrated they can't run one of these things. New Hampshire's small. I don't know, maybe start the whole process a couple weeks later, but let's roll five or six states in, do the Northeast, then move into the Southeast, then move into the Mid-Central, move over to the Midwest, do it regionally. I think it would be more efficient. And for goodness sakes, get rid of these silly caucuses. I was watching some of the, I was watching some of the, the stuff and you have all these people in like the, the blue Democrat t-shirts and they're walking around and it's like they're kind of counting hands. It, it's quaint perhaps, but it just doesn't work. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. A number of people have reached out to me asking if I am going to comment on the, the latest example and incident of violence at, at Mayfair Shopping Center. And my answer is no, not quite yet. But I do think it is in the interest of everybody for the Wauwatosa Police Department or the State Department of Justice, whoever is investigating this, to issue some statements early on. Because um, it's now been a couple days before this matter kind of spins out of control. If you haven't been following this, you know, Mayfair has had a, a huge problem over the years with unattended young people causing problems. Matter of fact, Mayfair has on the books this policy that says no unattended kids under the age of of 18 congregating, you know, on on weekends. Well, they they don't enforce that very vigorously. And apparently what happened, according to reports, is on on Sunday night outside in in the course of the mall, what happened is an employee reports a, a fight altercation it's a fight between a group of people around 5:30 p.m. in front of the Sephora store in in Mayfair um, what happened is people are screaming at each other pushing all that type of stuff security responds quickly and what security does is they they take people out into the parking lot they get them out of the mall now that's I, I that that's good on the one hand because you're getting the kids out of the mall at the same time you're taking the problem and you're you're pushing it you know, outside, so you're not really solving the problem. But they anyway, they're they're getting them out of the mall. At that point in time, the Wauwatosa Police Department is contacted by mall security, and they say, first of all, there's a disturbance inside the mall. And while the security officers were responding, at least one witness reported seeing a suspect who was one of the people involved in the disturbance was in possession of a gun. Okay, so now you got these kids that are causing trouble, and it appears that one of them is armed. So what happens is the Wauwatosa police get there, and what they do is they go up to investigate, and a number of the kids take off. They, they start running from the police. One of the people who's running matched the description given of the suspect who was in possession of the gun. So now you've got this guy, this kid who's got a gun. At least that's what their information is. He's not stopping. He's trying to run away. Officers called out in foot pursuit and gave chase through the parking lot. Now, here's what's being reported so far. During the pursuit, one officer fired his handgun, striking the 17-year-old who was running from the police. The 17-year-old was in possession of a handgun. So it was the guy that had the gun. They were chasing him, and and they shot him. Now, we don't know any more about the circumstances behind the the shooting. The family of the 17-year-old, who is there, understandably, they're they're upset. The, uh, The mother, she's on television saying, they shot my baby. He cried out for his mama. I wasn't there for, for my baby. And now 
the the family has reached out to some of the local advocacy groups who are saying no justice, no peace. We're going to demand a clear, transparent investigation. We need answers. We're demanding action. Answers. This was a young man, a child, a young black man. Children make mistakes. Children get into trouble. But do they deserve to die for that? And the answer is, you know, no. And that's why I think it's in the interest of everybody sooner rather than later for the authorities to come out and give a description to the public of what it was that, that happened. Um, <clears throat> what, what was it that prompted the officer to fire his gun? For example, um, you, don't, you, you don't shoot people, you know, who are running away from you even if they're armed. Now, you know, who, who knows what happened in here? Did the 17-year-old turn? Did he point the gun at the officer? What exactly was it? I, you know, where was the young man shot? You know, what were the circumstances behind that? Because those are all relevant factors in deciding whether or not the police behavior was appropriate. Like I say, you know, running from the police, you, you don't. You don't shoot. This isn't the movies. It's not television. You know, you don't shoot people when they are running away from you. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened. Don't know. But I think it's in the interest of everybody in this community for the authorities as quickly as possible to release their official version of what it is that happened here. I got an, I got an email this morning from somebody. Um, Jeff, I was in a store at Mayfair Mall on Sunday when the sales clerks and myself heard shouting. It was getting louder and was becoming disturbing. One of the clerks said there was a fight starting. I purchased my item and left the store to walk to the parking lot where my car was parked. I noticed two fairly young males zigzagging their way through the mall at a brisk pace, not really thinking much about it. I got in my car. I exited the parking lot by North Avenue. I went to the container store. Monday morning, while listening to WTMJ, I learned of the shooting. I checked my receipt for the time stamp, and I believe the verbal disturbance I heard in the mall is what led to the police being called and the teenager being shot. The tragic episode and social media comments concerned me enough to write you. What is a 17-year-old doing with a handgun at a mall? Had the teenager not run from police, he would probably be still be alive. Is killed being killed better than being arrested? And those are, are, are all very, very valid points and questions. You know, what what's a 17-year-old doing if he hadn't the gun? What's he doing with the gun at the mall? Now, again, that that doesn't make it a justified police shooting in and of itself, that the fact that the kid was armed, that the young man was armed. The circumstances become what, what did he do, what happened during the chase, and at least thus far, the authorities have been noticeably quiet as to presenting the details. So you know, people are saying, are you going to comment on this or, or whatever? And, and my answer is not until we know more, because I think at this stage, based on what's out in the public record, there's just not enough to make an informed decision about what happened. Should the 17-year-old have been in the mall with a gun? Of course not. Should the 17-year-old have run from the police? Of course not. Does that make it a justifying shooting? Well, no, not in and of itself. It depends, you know, what happened during the chase. Was the gun pointed at the police officers? What exactly were the circumstances? But I, I will say, given 
the, the dynamics that go on in this community, given the problems that we've had at Mayfair in the past, given the high profile nature of this, and candidly, given the rate, given the racial element to this, I think it's in the interest, like I say, of the authorities to come out and give a clear, concise, and accurate statement of the circumstances behind this, and then let the chips fall where they may. I mean, I, you know, undoubtedly, there's going to be calls for prosecutions. Undoubtedly, there's going to be civil lawsuits, or at least, you know, that happens in a lot of these cases. But I think it's in everybody's best interest to, first of all, you know, wait until we know the details before we try to, you know, pass judgment on the appropriateness or inappropriateness of particular behavior. And secondly, certainly in the interest of the authorities, to let the public know as quickly as possible what the circumstances were that led to the officer making the decision to fire his gun at the 17-year-old who was allegedly armed but was fleeing from the police. Sooner this all gets out, the better chance we're all going to have to make, you know, an assumption and analysis as to, you know, what was appropriate and what wasn't appropriate. And hopefully the authorities will get around to that, like, very, very soon. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. It is interesting, and one of our textures makes the point. You know, you have some of these groups out there who, who, you know, tout the line, no justice, no peace. But it is interesting how selective some of the these groups get. And, and like I say, the, the shooting of the 17-year-old at, at Mayfair, I think there's a lot of questions out there. I think it would be in everybody's best interest just to wait until, you know, the details of the investigation come out. But, you know, there are other outrages there. I mean, for example, you have the situation of the mother of five, the pregnant mother of five, who was killed the other night um, following a drive-by shooting on the northwest side. She's a passenger in a party bus that was parked outside Jean's Supper Club on North 60th Street. 2.30 in the morning, a gunman fires five to six rounds from the sunroof of a passing car. Um, she's 35 years old. She was struck, and she ended up passing away. Her baby, born at 26 weeks, was in stable condition after they performed an emergency C-section. So again, I just it, it is interesting, and I understand the concerns that you know some groups have about you know, social justice and things of the like. But at the same time, there's a lot of violence that's going on in, in the community. And it, it's if it turns out that what happened at Mayfair was an abuse of power and authority by the police, then, then that's what it's going to turn out to be. But let's let's not, I don't know, be outraged at that. And not be outraged, say, at the 35-year-old woman who was shot in the drive-by shooting or any one of the numerous other shootings, homicides that occurred over the course of the last week in the city of Milwaukee. Okay, want to revisit something we talked about a, a while ago because it does not appear that it's going to be happening. And this will surprise some people. I think... The folks I know in the legislature, the Republicans who control the Senate and the Assembly, I think they're making a mistake. The city of Milwaukee and Milwaukee County want very much to have a binding referendum that would, if passed, if passed, would give them permission to raise the sales tax in Milwaukee County by 1%. Right? 
And this is the thing Tom Barrett's been saying that even though this would be a countywide sales tax referendum, that the money, part of the money would go to the city of Milwaukee. Tom Barrett's been saying, I got to lay off 60 cops unless I get this extra money. I can't find it anywhere else, which is kind of an eye-roller and head-scratcher, but that, that's that's what Barrett says. You've got the county that's been pleading you know, poverty for, for quite a while, and they're saying, hey, we've got all these different things we need. We want the extra 1% in sales tax. All right, we're going to use some of it for um, operational expenses. We're going to do all these different things. That's what we want to do. Before they can do that, they need permission from the state legislature to put that referendum on the ballot, right? So far, the legislature has not acted on this. And because the legislature is only going to be in session for a few more weeks, the assembly, I think, knocks off in early February, and then the Senate knocks off in in early March, unless something happens dramatically, this isn't going to get on the ballot. This isn't going to be get be approved by the legislature in time for an, an April election. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If I still lived in Milwaukee County, I would undoubtedly vote no on this binding referendum if it were on the ballot. The problem is it's not even going to be on the ballot because you have state legislators who have decided they don't think Milwaukee county or city spends money in a responsible way. So they're not going to give the authorities the ability to ask the voters for an increase. I think this is wrong. I'm, I am a big local control guy. And just like we routinely give local school boards the right to go and have referendums and ask whether or not voters want to increase their taxes, I think it's wrong not to allow Milwaukee County to ask voters the same thing. Now, that's a different question than whether or not it should pass. But I, I think they should have the chance to make the case. And look, I'm a not, like I say, I'd vote against it if I still lived in Milwaukee County. I understand the argument that people in the city and the county of Milwaukee aren't, aren't necessarily responsible stewards of money. But it strikes me as wrong that the voters in Milwaukee County aren't going to have a chance to decide this for themselves. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If I were either in the state senate or the state assembly, I would vote in favor of allowing the referendum. Let the people in Milwaukee County decide whether they want to give the authorities permission to raise the sales tax. What's wrong with that? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And if nothing else, this would force the politicians in Milwaukee County and the city to go to the voters and really make the case as to why this is necessary. 855-616-1620, 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should we at least have the vote? My answer is yes. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. You're listening to Jack Wagner on WTMJ. Heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States, and chances are you or someone you know is perhaps affected by it. Please join our very own Gene Miller for our latest WTMJ Cares initiative. Help us raise funds for a local chapter of the American Heart Association, all leading up to National Wear Red Day on Friday, February 7th. Go to WTMJ.com for more details. WTMJ Cares is powered by Watry Industries 
and Premier Aluminum. Yeah, as it stands now, the voters in Milwaukee County will not get the opportunity, at least on the April ballot, to decide whether or not they want to increase their sales tax. I think this is wrong because, again, I think this is a matter where it's up to local control. If local school boards have the authority to go to referendum and ask for spending referendums and have to make their case, I don't understand why Milwaukee County shouldn't be given the right to do the same thing. Now, Again, just because you give them the right to do that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be able to convince the voters that they would, in fact, be good stewards of this money. But one of the things that's going to be going on now is that unless and until the county gets the opportunity to have that referendum, we're going to be doing nothing but play the blame game. When we look at all the cuts and things like that, whoever the new county executive is and whoever the next mayor is, I presume it's going to be Tom Barrett, but they're going to be able to say, look, you know, it, it's not our financial mismanagement. It's not our spending money on things like the trolley that goes nowhere. The, the problem is those evil Republicans in the legislature wouldn't give us the authority to do what people in Milwaukee want, which is to raise the sales tax. All all our problems will go away if we get this increased sales tax. Well, if you increase the sales tax, I don't think all the financial problems are going to go away. I, I think what that's going to do is probably just put a small Band-Aid on what is ultimately a gaping wound. And until you get major fiscal reform, nothing is ever going to change here. But until you will give the ability to have that referendum, what you've done is you've allowed the local politicians to set up the state politicians as scapegoats. And so they're, they're going to just be able to wash their hands of this. Yeah, we're sorry we had to make this cut or that cut or whatever, but it's those evil legislators in Madison, particularly those evil Republicans. I would say let them have the vote. Let them try to make the case and then let the chips fall where they may. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Hey, what's going on in the stock market today is is an indicator of, of something that we, we say a lot, which is that you shouldn't allow the current events of any given day to necessarily affect your investment choices. And I'm, I'm not Dave Spano, nor do I play him on the radio, but, but here's a classic example. You, you have legitimate concern about this coronavirus that is really impacting China. You have a number of people you know, worldwide who've gotten sick, but mostly it's confined to China. But now there's this quarantine and travel uh, to China is being dramatically limited. China's not letting people out. They're trying to get a handle on this. And, and obviously, because China is a huge part of the world market, when th- this is a disruptive factor. But at the same time, it's not like this is the plague, and we've had these things before. Well, last week, in really, I think, some panic situations about, gee, what could be the impact of the coronavirus, you had a couple massive, just massive sell-offs, including one day, was it Friday, the Dow Jones Industrials was down 600 points. All right, now, I, that, that's a bloodbath. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a huge drop. But what it was was panic in response to, again, the the event of the day. And I can't 
tell you how many different situations we've had. And, you know, one of the most recent ones was, was Brexit. A couple of years ago, the United Kingdom votes to leave the European Union. And for the next two days, you, you've got the stock market just, I mean, dropping and dropping. And it's hemorrhaging. And then, you know, a week later, it comes back. And two weeks later, it's higher than it ever was. You know, the same thing is starting to play out now. Now, I don't know what long term, what how big a deal the coronavirus will be. I don't think anybody knows that long term. But, you know, you had you had a couple huge days of drops, particularly that 600-point drop the other day last week. Well, okay, now apparently the, those fears are over. Today the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 479 points, 479 points. Yesterday it was up like 150 points. I think it finished over 150 points. But in these last two days, assuming – that there's not some huge decline in the next 90 minutes, essentially you'll have had most, if not all, of those losses from, like Friday, will have been gained back over the course of the, the last two days. Now, it's not saying that you shouldn't look at your investments, and it's not saying that you shouldn't, you know, that you should just stick your head in the sand and not pay attention to, you know, world events or local events. But for for people who just panic because, okay, well, there, there's the event of the day, this coronavirus. It seems scary. Boy, I, it, it could affect airlines and it could affect oil and all. I'm, I'm going to get out of the stock market entirely. Well, okay, that's the decision you make. But, you know, you left a lot of money on the table because two days later, most of those losses are back. I guess the, the bottom line is that the, the panic that causes certain swings always is sort of interesting to me because you do want to say to some people, why don't you just, you know, wait a couple days, see where this all goes? Because, yeah, I guess at some point in time, you know, you're going to have a prolonged drop in the market. That's that's almost certainly going to happen. But it doesn't mean it's going to happen irrespective of market fundamentals. Um, it might, you know, it's, it's just merely, okay, we, we've had, okay, there, there's a pipeline that's leaking. Okay, that creates a problem. Oh, you've got this coronavirus. That creates a problem. But to say, okay, now I'm going to automatically change my investment strategy, is like I say, stock market right now, Dow up 473 points. Couple that with up the gains yesterday, and, and you've got over 600-point gain in just the last two days. All right. Tonight... The president gives his State of the Union address. Tomorrow, the Senate reconvenes to vote on the impeachment trial of President Trump. And if you want to talk about something that's anticlimactic, it is very clear. I mean, everybody understands that the president is going to be acquitted. The only question is, will it be along a strict party line vote? Will you have one or two Republicans who on one of one of the articles of impeachment, and there are two, will one or two of the Republicans jump ship? And will any of the Democrats jump ship on some of the articles of impeachment as well? Or will this be strictly along a, a party vote? I, I don't know. But the bottom line of this is President Trump is not going to be removed from office. This was an outcome that was predictable to anybody who has been watching this process over the course of the last several months. Interestingly, now there's a couple Democrat senators recognizing that they're not going to remove the president, who are now saying, well, maybe we should go with the censure resolution, which, by the way, is something I talked about months ago, which I thought I think if they had done a censure resolution, you would have maybe even had some bipartisan support for it. But that's not what the Democrats decided to do. They wanted to go all in on impeachment. Now it it's failed. 
So they've lost. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I have a very simple question for you. Was it worth it? You know, this whole idea of the impeachment arguments, it has consumed. It has consumed hundreds, if not thousands of hours of television time. It has, you know, pulled all the oxygen out of the air in Washington, D.C. There's been very little that's been done on policy matters over the course of the last several months because we have been obsessed with this impeachment situation, a situation that was apparent from the beginning was never going to result in the removal of President Trump from office. So now that this is going to be over, all over but the shouting tomorrow, my question is, regardless of which side of the aisle you were on, was this worth it or was this a colossal waste of time and resources? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I go back to my point. If they would have simply gone with a censure resolution months and months ago, they would have had bipartisan support. The point would have been made about the phone call, and we had moved on. But that's not how some people decided to play it, and the impeachment thing has now blown up in the face of some of the people who were pushing it. Was it worth it? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My answer would be no, but I'm willing to discuss. If you're on the line, please hold on. Back in just a minute, this is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, the um, impeachment proceedings, the trial in the Senate ends tomorrow, not with a bang, but with a whimper. The only question is, how large a margin will President Trump um, be acquitted by? Will it be a party line vote, like uh, essentially the impeachment proceedings in the House were, or will a couple of Democrats decide to shift and vote against? One of the two articles, my guess would be the obstruction of Congress article. A couple of Democrats will will vote against conviction. That would be my guess. But at the end of the day, President Trump is not going to be removed. He is going to be emboldened. Was was the last six months worth it? Let's talk to Mike on the northwest side. Hi, Mike. Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, my thoughts are that this has been a total waste of time and money for the American public and not just the last six months, it's been the last three or four years that uh, they Democrats want to get rid of Trump before he even took the oath of office with the Mueller report and all that stuff going on. I'm amazed that he got as much done with all this BS going around him all this time. And the American public deserves more out of Congress. Do you think President Trump comes out of this stronger than when he went into it? I don't know. I'm kind of thinking it might backfire on the Democrats, but also, I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. If no. I would know. I I wouldn't. I wouldn't be sitting where I am. I'd be uh, doing something else. Fair enough. No, I, I, that's a fair question. I, I, I raise that because there, there's a new Gallup does daily tracking polls measuring the president's approval. And again, it's it, it's a poll. I, I understand that there, there's questions with accuracy and reliability and things like that. But the Gallup poll out today has his job approval at forty nine percent which is the highest approval rating that the president has had since he took office in 2017. Now, he's still slightly underwater because the disapproval rate is 50 percent to 49 percent. But but he's never he's never been at 49 percent before. And, and he is. And I think, you know, I think part of that is is a backlash 
to the impeachment process. I, I, I do. Now, whether ultimately this this hurts him in the long run or not, I, I guess the jury's out on that. But at least short term, um, he, he comes out of this victorious, which I, I don't know that that's what the Democrats were intending when Nancy Pelosi went down this route um, in the first place. All right, um, 855-616-1620. Let's talk to another Mike in Janesville. Hi, Mike. Oh, hi, Jeff. Love your program. Thank you, sir. Um, I, I think uh, Lamar Alexander just did it perfect that uh, many people, including myself, did not like what he did. But if it is not against the law, you know, how can you take it to impeachment? And, uh, and as far as the evidence, they had the evidence. All they needed was the phone call. They had the transcript of the phone call. Yeah. And, um, you know, he gets bad marks for low character for me. Um, but it's like, uh, you know, it was so, so transparent that he did it to go after Joe Biden because he's scared of Joe Biden to, to compete against him. And now, and now I feel he's afraid of, uh, Mike Bloomberg, but it's like, it's like, but does it, I think when Jonathan Turley said, you know, that the abuse of power, is on the Congress for doing this, and that did not get carried in the in the major news cycles. Right. But I agree with that. I think they overstepped their power, and they and they did it because they could, and it was nonpartisan, and uh, both sides stick. Do you um do you think this hurts the president for reelection, or is it kind of a non-factor? Um, I. I'm going to be very interested in it. I, I think he'll get the same votes as he had last time, but uh, Mitt Romney got more votes than he did, and I think that uh, if more participation comes out of the people who vote the Democratic Party, I don't. I don't see him getting reelected. I mean, he's got a nice track record for what he could say that he accomplished, and he has accomplished some things, and that uh, I can't take that away from him. But I just. I just don't think that he'll have enough of the country to get voted. Good enough. And I see. And what I say is, when I, I, it's kind of unfair when I ask you that question, Mike, because my answer to that question is always, it it depends. I mean, it it depends. The Democrats nominate Bernie Sanders. Um, If they nominate Bernie Sanders, the election becomes about do do we want to fundamentally change the way uh, America operates? And I think most people are going to say no, because if it's Bernie Sanders, for example, the election is about Bernie Sanders. If it's somebody who is more moderate, a more center left candidate, then the election becomes about President Trump. Um, At least that's kind of the way I analyze this. But going back to your point, I see I, I agree that which is why I have been saying for months and months. If instead of trying to use the nuclear option, instead of saying we're we're going to we're going to tilt at windmills and we're going to be Don Quixote and we're going to try to remove this president from office, if instead they would have issued a a, a censure resolution, we are going to say that we think that that call was inappropriate. Like I say, I think they would have. I think you would have had. Republicans who ended up voting for that as well, because I, I, I'm, look, I understand. I, I get it. I'm, I'm with, you know, some of the other people there, including Lamar Alexander. I, I don't think it was a perfect phone call, but I don't think it rises to the level of an impeachable offense. And to that extent, I, I think this whole thing has been just an exercise in futility. And I wouldn't necessarily care about it, except for the fact 
that Washington has got almost nothing done over the course of the last six months as we tilt at this windmill. And as I said, and I've been saying for months and months, ultimately the American people are going to render the verdict on Donald Trump when they go to the polls next November. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Vincent on the northwest side. Vincent, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? Hello, Jeff. Yeah, right, go ahead. You're on. Well, the, 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 the thing is, yeah, I think it was, I think it was worth it. The fact is, it's always worth it to find out the truth. From the beginning, President Trump has lied about the issue of, uh, uh, of the quick pro quo. He's lied about it, and he continues to lie about it. And the fact is, uh, 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 testimony after testimony proved that this individual, that, that, that everybody knew that, they, that, that the money was tied to the investigation with Biden. And, and, and I mean, the funds were tied to the, the investigation of Biden and his son. And so, 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 so people say, well, they don't want to hear the truth. The fact is that, that we need to find out what our government is doing and, what, and if they're lying to us or not. And so President Trump has lied, and he's been proven that he's a liar. Do you think you needed the impeachment process to determine that? Because I will tell you, Vincent, there's a lot of people right now who are listening to you and say, ah, Vincent doesn't know what he's talking about, and and President didn't lie, et cetera, et cetera. Do you... Could we have accomplished that same thing without, without again, doing everything that we've done? Um, I mean, wasn't it pretty apparent that, you know, after the transcript of that tape came out, wasn't it pretty apparent that, you know, I mean, that the tape stands for itself. President Trump was saying what he was saying, and people can draw their own conclusions as to whether he was telling the, the truth about that call or not. No, it wasn't apparent. When you had the individuals testifying, in the house the fact is everybody understood everybody understood once they said that everybody was in the loop even even the 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 the, the bold the bold report the fact is is that hey even even he did, he he uh, disputes what the president has said everybody understood that there, that this was a quid pro quo situation and then and the president lied and, and also tried to uh, basically uh, uh, stop the investigation so, so yeah, uh, you know, it, it, truth to me again, truth is always worth what you have to go through to get to because that's what that's what ultimately we 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 judge people on. Got it. Well, I, and, and I guess my my response to that would be, I, I, I'm people have their own truth, and, and people will will decide that for themselves. And and I don't know that you needed to go through the impeachment route to get witnesses to to testify about that phone conversation one way or the other. But I guess, I mean, ultimately we'll see. I do think one of the things that's going to happen is, and, and you, you know, we've seen this play out before. I think you have a number of Republicans who believe that this was an overreach on the part of Democrats in Congress and are are angry and are, you know, willing to respond. Saying, okay, look, this is, we're, we're tired of this. This has been, you know, four years of these investigations and these allegations. As far as the people who don't like President Trump, well, I don't know that there's anybody who, after the impeachment process, has ended up changing their minds. Or if there are, there's not, there's not a lot of them. And again, we'll, we'll know in November how this all comes out. Uh, Jeff, here's a couple of texts. Jeff, I don't know if the president will be stronger, but he's definitely not going to be weaker. Um, Jeff, this is an impeachable offense. The Republican Senate is feckless. That's the problem. Well, again, I will, we'll disagree on that. I don't think it's an impeachable offense at all, but, and the majority of the U.S. Senate is going to agree with me, but, 
you know, ultimately the American people get to make that decision. I'm going to be interested to see whether President Trump talks about this process tonight in the State of the Union speech. If I were advising him, not that he'd listen to me, I would say I would say move on. I would say talk about the accomplishments of the administration, talk about what you want to accomplish over the course of the next year, and just kind of leave the whole impeachment thing till tomorrow after the Senate has its vote, after he's acquitted, you know, then he can go and send out the tweets. I would stay away from impeachment at the State of the Union. Whether he does that or not, well, we'll have to listen and see. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Melissa, I'm feeling guilty. I was a slug this morning mm-hmm. because uh, Tuesday is the morning that I go over. I have this personal trainer oh, once yes. a week. Mm-hmm. And if you can't tell, I, I my, my lovely wife had a cold last week that she's getting over. And because we share everything. Oh, she, she was shared, nice enough to give that to she, you. She was nice and kind <laughs> enough oh, to, to give, give me the cold. She's a giver. She is a giver. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's kind of in the, the, my colds run these phases where they start with a sore throat. Then they kind of go to my yes. head. Mm-hmm. And then... If I'm lucky, I get rid of it. If not, they kind of go to my chest and linger around. Yes. So last night was the second night of, of in the th- my throat. So I really, I, it was one of those things where I did not sleep well at all because mm-hmm. I've got the sore throat, you know. So I'm, And so I, the alarm goes off at 545 this morning, and so I've got the, the cold, which isn't bad, but it's still, it's it's a cold. It's well, and it's one of those things where you, you kind of want to just rest, rest it away. Exactly. Right? That, that That's it. So, I mean, so it's like 545. I wake up because the dog has to go out. So I take the dog out and I was sitting there thinking, you know, I, I probably, I did not get more than probably an hour and a half or two hours of, of actual real solid sleep last night. I don't feel great. And the idea of going over and having like an hour workout, I'm just not up to On it. top so, of all of that, you would have right. never like been able to come into work. Well, I, you know, I <laughs> Way to drug you in right, here. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I sent I sent Jason this note saying, mm-hmm. I, I'm really sorry about this, but I'm just not going to be able to make it. But I, I am kind of feeling guilty because I'm sitting there thinking, okay, even though I don't feel well, I could have probably toughed it out and maybe gotten through it. Well, I think you did the right thing. I would have done the same thing. Uh, yeah. It's, just it's, rest. Right. Why push yourself? Well, that's what I was thinking because we're going on vacation next week, and I'm like, okay, I want to get over with this because I don't want this to be lingering on when you know we're we're out of town. Good idea. So that so that that's my justification for that. But the truth of the matter is, I'm, I probably still was a slug. But I'm working on these things. <laughs> don't feel too bad. Yeah. Why is it moving on? Why is it that Milwaukee is declaring war on Summerfest? Summerfest is one of the very, very, I was going to say very, very few things, but it's one of the few things around here that, that works. You know, you, you look at what's happened with Summerfest over the course of the last 50 years, and, and you look at all the other music festivals that have, have come and gone over those years. And I understand that the attendance at Summerfest goes up and down, and last year was kind of a down year for attendance. But you, you think back... If you're old enough, you think back as to the way the Summerfest grounds used to look when the festival first started. You know, very, very few permanent structures, porta potties, and tents, and all that. And now you have th- th- this massive infrastructure there with all the giant stages, and you've got all the enclosed areas, and you've got the great amphitheaters, and all those type of things. Summerfest is something that works. 
And Summerfest is something that brings people into the area from all over. Would this community be better or worse without Summerfest? And and looking at it like that, I think it's clear that the answer is, yeah, the community would be a lot worse if it weren't for Summerfest. And I know maybe you haven't gone down there in years, or maybe you, you've aged out of it or whatever, you don't like the crowds. Okay, I respect all that. But that doesn't mean that it's not something that is absolutely tremendous for the city, for the county, for the region, and I would say also for the state. All right, which brings me to this continuing war that the mayor and members of the Common Council, highlighted by one of the aldermen, Bob Bauman, and I, I say this before, occasionally you run into politicians who are just always wrong. They, they just are. And Bob Bauman is one of those guys. If you want to find out where you should be on an issue, find out where Bob Bauman is, go the other way, you will be right. So they've decided to go after Summerfest on the issue of paying more money than they are contractually obligated to do. I think this is wrong, and I think it needs to stop. Here's the deal. Summerfest signed a multi-year lease that was renegotiated in 2009, right? The lease goes to 2030, so the lease has another 10 years to run. The lease says Summerfest has to pay X amount of rent a year. That's in the lease. And then every five years, the amount of rent goes up. Um, this year, Summerfest is going to pay, I think, $2.4 million in, in rent. That, that's what they're scheduled to do. It, it's in the lease. Last year, they paid like $1.7 or $1.8 million. But it, it's a contractually agreed to amount. It's in the lease. The lease has another 10 years to run. In addition to the lease, the, in addition to the rent, the lease has a provision that says that Summerfest has to share in the supplemental costs. Supplemental costs would be, for example, like the, the fire and police. And the lease has the amount that Summerfest is supposed to pay. For example, this year, the lease says that Summerfest has to pay about $138,000 in supplemental fees, all right? The city attorney says very clearly, says, hey, th- this fee, it- it's, it's not intended to cover the rising costs of security, for example. It's simply intended to partially offset the cost. That's what this deal is. So you got the deal. Summerfest pays $2.4 million in rent this year and another $138,000 in supplemental fees to help partially offset the cost of some of the other expenses the city has. Right, the city provides fire and police protection. Last year, the police protection, the city says it cost eight hundred grand. i am ballparking this. So Summerfest... Pays the you know the what it pays in rent this year it's going to be two point four million they pay another hundred thirty thousand dollars in the supplemental fees the city says well wait a second you know it's costing us eight hundred thousand dollars ballpark to provide the, the police you're only paying one hundred thirty four thousand dollars towards that we want you to pay the difference we want you to give us an extra six hundred seventy thousand or thereabouts to which Summerfest says. Are you nuts? I mean, this is the agreement. So what Bob Bauman is doing now 
Now, and he started this last week, and I made mention of it then. Summerfest, every year, goes in and asks for one of these different applications with regard to street closures. You know, it's, it's one of these things, you've got to get a permit. If you're going to have a block party, you've got to get a permit to close off the, the street, right? That, that's what you have to do. So Summerfest goes and they say, okay, we, we, we need our permit every year to close off those streets immediately around the Summerfest grounds. So it's easier for people to get in and out, and people aren't getting hit by cars and all those type of things. What Bauman is doing is he says, well, no, I'm, I'm going to try to block this permit and... I want to introduce a resolution which would say that Summerfest would have to pay for the full cost of the police services, regardless of what the lease says. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. For the life of me, I don't, number one, understand why the city of Milwaukee, I get that they want every dime they can get, but to screw around with Summerfest, you know, Something that does, in fact, work in this city, I think, is wrong. Secondly, whatever happened to the notion that a deal is a deal? I mean, if the best example I can give is if you rent, you know, a bill, you rent an apartment, you know, and you signed a year lease that says you're going to pay two thousand dollars a month. All right. And then you're going to contribute an extra 50 bucks towards snow removal or something. And the landlord two months in says, you know, um, we, we had a really snowy winter and it's costing me more than that 50 bucks. Um, what I need you to do is I, I want you to give me 300 bucks. Well, what's your response going to be? Your response is going to be, no, I, I have this deal. Now, I'm not going to just give you more money. That, to me, is precisely what the city of Milwaukee is trying to do to Summerfest. And they are trying to extort them by saying, we're not going to give you these ancillary permits, these other things that you need to run your festival, unless you agree to give us more money. You know, part of me says it would be interesting if Summerfest decided to call the city's bluff and simply say, all right, fine. You know, we're, you don't give us the permits. You know, we'll, we'll not run the festival. Now, they're not going to do that. But, you know, that would be an interesting thing if Summerfest were to die and the cause would be Tom Baird and some members of the Common Council. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. In its simplest form, this to me is, is a deal, is a deal. You make the deal. You then have to, I think, live with the deal. Instead of trying to find all sorts of ways to, I don't know, I don't know if renege is the right word, but extort more money from an organization than they are obligated to pay you. And nobody else would do this. And most people would be outraged if you leased a car or, like I say, rented an apartment or took out a mortgage with a bank. And all of a sudden the bank comes in and says, well, we know we told you that the interest rate was going to be 3.2%. 3.2%. But you know what? Interest rates have gone up. We understand that you've got a 15-year fixed mortgage, but we're going to change it. We want you to pay us 4% interest. Really? All right. Let's start with Tony in Milwaukee. Tony, hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Tony. Okay. Jeff, uh, I know a deal's a deal, but the way Summerfest is going now, they're bringing in these bands, uh, for example, like the Imagine Dragons, that are just jam-packing the, the smaller stages, and they do need the extra security. Now, when they made that deal, they didn't have that in the, in the past like that. 
Well, I well, okay. I mean, so I get so so what so what's the point? Summerfest is more popular than it was before, so they should pay more. Well, they're they're the ones that are bringing in these bands, and they should pay more for the security for the people. I mean, yeah. Well, no, see, I guess I thanks to call today. I, I guess I I completely disagree. That that to me, that's like saying. All right, you you want to rent an apartment from me? All right, you're going to pay me two thousand dollars a month for the apartment, and you know what? Because um, I will take the responsibility for clearing the driveway, so I need you to pay me an extra fifty dollars a month that we're going to put towards that driveway cost. That's like me going in and saying, "Hey, it snowed a lot, you know, this last winter, and um, I need you to pay me four hundred dollars for the driveway cost, not the fifty dollars that you agreed on." I, you, you know, that's. That's the deal. Now, it's very, very fair when the lease comes up for renegotiation 10 years from now. It's very, very fair, I think, to go back to the drawing board and say, you know what? We have to figure this out because we don't think you've been paying your fair share for police protection. So, you know, we want you to pay a a greater rate. And then it's a matter of negotiation for the next contract. That is a very, very fair thing. But to simply say, well, you know, we don't like the deal we made in 2009, that's, I mean, that to me, that just doesn't fly. Mark in New Berlin. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Well, I say what we should do then is give them $130,000 worth of protection. Let's just, for a hypothetical, say that's 100 officers. They get 100 officers. They don't get the 600 officers. And you know they don't get the eight hundred officers. The eight hundred officers for eight hundred thousand, they get a hundred officers. Okay. You know, and then then we put the rest of the city of Milwaukee because God knows the city of Milwaukee needs officers patrolling streets. They don't need them sitting on their motorcycles helping the drunks cross the street. They well, need them patrolling on a, a you know down on Walnut Street. On well, a Friday night. Well, Mark, that's it. Now, see, I think that's a that's a fair point. Regardless, I, I think that if if the police want to take a step back and say, "All right, let's look at our staffing for Summerfest," do we need? And again, keep in mind, the city attorney is really, really clear on this. That hundred and thirty thousand bucks that they kick in, that was never intended to cover the cost of police services. That's very, very clear in the lease. It was intended to help offset the costs. So I I guess if you want to say, I think the police are, are misallocating resources and, you know, maybe we shouldn't have as much of a police presence, you know, helping with, with all where all those people are there and all the traffic. Well, I, I guess, I mean, I guess that's a fair sort of thing. Now, the problem with that is that, the police go where the police are, are needed. And it's not a question of helping drunks cross the street. It's more like, all right, you've got people that are going out into the surrounding neighborhood and they're getting into fights, or you've got automobile crashes or things of the like. If you want to take a step back and say to the police, let's reassess needs. Okay, well, I guess that's fair. But but at the same time, you know, the city of Milwaukee has an obligation to provide safety for the people of the city and if it just so happens that that means there needs to be extra help around Summerfest at the time all these people are pouring into Summerfest well that that's where I think that the police end up having to be so I mean a deal is a deal that's that's the simplest form and I think it's I get that the city wants money I just think it is unfortunate that they've decided that at least some aldermen have decided that a deal isn't a deal and a contract isn't a contract and that they don't think that they should have to live with an agreement that they negotiated 10 years ago. 
That's what I think bothers me. And I guess if the city thinks they can do it with Summerfest, for anybody else who has property in the city or does business with the city, what does it say if they decide that, hey, that agreement we made with you, that contract we made with you, well, we're not going to follow that either. We don't think we should apply it because we, we want to get more money out of it. Well, I understand getting more money out of it, but you're stuck with the deal. This is Jeff Wagner.